0: Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Helen Scales. Hi, Chris. This week... How to combat collisions. Yes, scientists are looking at the insect world for the solution to road rage and all kinds of crashes on Britain's roads. How are we going to make them safer? Well, it turns out that insects have their very own ability to avoid bumping into things, and scientists now reckon they can borrow from biology and apply that to cars to make them less able to crash into each other too. We'll be finding out how this evening. Also on tonight's show, social insects, how ants, wasps and bees live together and interact together. How does that relationship come about? How do they help each other? And is it just ants, wasps and bees? Or are we on the trail of finding other kinds of social insects lurking out there somewhere in the wilds of Thailand? We'll be finding out from William Foster from Cambridge University this evening. And also... Bioluminescence. If you don't know what that means, you must have heard of glowworms and fireflies. How do they make that animal light? That's the amazing chemical um, findings that we're going to be looking, about, looking into later on this evening uh, with someone from the University of Cardiff. He's coming on the phone. And also, have you ever been stung by a jellyfish? Tell us, what was it like and did you get someone to wee on you to make it better? We'll be discussing whether or not that's actually the best thing to do. Hello, my name's Chris Smith, and also here, as I say, is Helen. What else have you got in store for us, Helen?
1: Ah, yes, well, of course, as every week, we will give you a rundown of the latest news in the world of science and technology and medicine. And so this week, we shall be finding out what knit nurses found when they rummaged through the heads of thousands of school kids in Wales... Um, so I'm not quite sure if that's going to be uh, very nice but very relevant for the insect theme we have today and also we will be learning about a fungus that might help eat through the tonnes and tonnes of plastic waste that we throw away every year and also on an environmental note we'll be hearing about how the US has just created the world's largest marine protected area
0: And uh, if you're in an experimental mood, don't forget, because it is National Insect Week this week, we've been asking you to go out into your garden and set some pitfall traps. No, they're not the kind of things that are six feet deep with sharp bamboo spikes at the bottom to catch your dad. These are not man traps, they're pitfall traps. You just put a plastic cup into the ground, cover it with a bit of wood or something, and see which drops in overnight. Have you been doing this? Have you caught anything interesting? We want to know about it. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Now, as we always do on uh, the Sunday evening, we're going to take a look at what's been happening this week in the world of science all over the world. (coughs) And a very encouraging piece of news has come out from the University of Wisconsin, where Adam Gus and his colleagues have found an exciting way to break down things called phenolic resins. Now, you may not have heard of of phenolic resins, but these are actually very bad for the environment because they're heavy-duty plastics. They're the kind of thing that makes your car's air filter, the air conditioning unit. In other words, heavy industrial or automobile parts, the car trim, that kind of stuff. And to give you an example of how much of a problem this is, they're accumulating in landfill sites in America, for which I know the figures, to the tune of 2.5 million tonnes of these things every single year, and they just don't break down. And the reason that people thought they were very durable and robust is because you make them by taking phenol, which is disinfectant, most people have heard of that, and you boil it up with something called formalin, the stuff you use to fix and embalm bodies. And when you do that, the two things link together in a dense meshwork of fibers, which na- nature and natural processes find it very hard to pick apart because these things are locked together so tightly. But what Adam Gus and his team noticed over in the University of Wisconsin was that if you look at this stuff very, very closely, it's very similar in terms of its ultrastructure to lignin. And lignin is the woody bit of plants, and fungi love lignin it's one of their preferred food choices so why not try and see if various types of fungus could break down this stuff so what they did was to select a panel of eleven different types of fungus including one type that are called white rot fungus and uh, in fact they found one of them it's called Fenerichitae cryosporium and this fungus breaks down they've found this phenolic resin this heavy duty plastic that we previously thought was not biodegradable so that's really encouraging because what it suggests is that actually what we thought was a problem for the environment may actually not be so if we can work out how to make these fungi even better at eating the stuff. Helen.
1: And that sounds like great news especially as we have so much problems with where to put all our waste and the sea is one place that people seem to think might be somewhere to put all those plastics that can't biodegrade but very bad idea and yes this week we've had really exciting news in the marine biology world that um, George W. Bush has made quite a shock announcement that um, he has created and will be creating the world's largest marine sanctuary in Hawaii um, it, basically the plan is to designate an area of 340,000 square kilometres in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands as a national monument and this is the highest protection status that the US can have and it will completely ban all fishing activity in the area it's, it's a really important area for the oceans there, it's one of the most pristine areas that they think there's around 7,000 species of marine fish and invertebrates there and around a quarter of those we don't find anywhere else on the planet but um, chris do you know wh- which country them um, the americans have now beaten to the post of having the biggest marine protected area
0: well it's not going to be japan that's for sure
1: no definitely or Scandinavia. not no definitely
0: not um uh, go for south america
1: nope It's the Australian, the Great Barrier Reef, that used to be um, the world's largest marine reserve. Um, But now the Hawaiian Islands beat them to that. And there's one main difference, actually, between this new protected area in Hawaii and the the Australian um, Great Barrier Reef, in that these Hawaiian Islands are extremely remote and uninhabited, virtually uninhabited. There used to be a US Navy base out there, I think, but that's not really got any people left on it. So really, there isn't that much of a conflict anyway going on between people. There's only about eight fishing boats that were ever allowed to operate in there area, um, which is a huge contrast to Australia where the Queensland coast is hugely populated, there's enormous industries the tourism industry, there is some fishing still allowed inside the Great Barrier Reef and marine sanctuary, it's sort of zoned into different things that you can do, so so in a way maybe it's an easy option just to say, oh we're going to cordon off this bit of Hawaii, does it make any difference but conservationists do think that that could have become, there could have been more development basically moving into these islands and that fisheries could have started expanding, so it's really preempting that kind of impact, which is really quite forward thinking especially coming from the likes of George W. Bush, who hasn't actually got the best reputation when it comes to things like wanting to go and search for oil and gas in the uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It's quite
0: interesting, Helen, that I remember you writing an article to to highlight the fact that often there are unforeseen benefits to man's activities. And in fact, the Kennedy Space Centre, where all the space shuttles blast off from, has actually had a major impact on fishing to the, to the benefit of fishermen that's, locally.
1: That's right. I mean, just because we had to keep people out of that area because there were spaceships going off and people weren't allowed to fish it basically meant that the fisheries around there, outside of that area that was protected, were becoming prize-winning and enormous and the fishermen were pulling out these enormous specimen, specimens and it was doing a great thing. So, you know, cordon off one piece of the oceans and it does actually spill out and really boost fisheries as well as, you know, biodiversity elsewhere as well. Because the key thing Ooh, here, that, that
0: probably the mistake that a lot of people make is... Um, you end up catching the big fish and this means the small ones slip through the net, obviously and a lot of people think, well that's good, you leave the small ones to grow big, but actually the big ones have the most babies and have the fittest offspring.
1: Yeah, that's right and in fact we're we're kind of putting almost an evolutionary force on these fish stocks and we're causing them to actually change to become smaller because those are the ones that aren't getting caught, so it's like a natural selection force going on there, we really are making huge changes that we just don't quite understand and whether or not the fishes will actually recover after we stop fishing them is another question. We're
0: we're sticking with this sort of marine theme I've got an email here from Mike who's actually uh, he's studying ecology and utah in the u.s and he says uh, i'm an ecology phd student and i listen to your podcast in utah i've got a question because in a recent show you talked in fact helen was talking about the speed of a jellyfish sting there's a myth or is it truth i've heard that urine from a human can negate a jellyfish sting is that an urban legend
1: Right, I've been looking into this because there is, but there doesn't seem to be a very clear answer as to whether whether or not actually urine does help with jellyfish stings or not. I mean, what we're trying to do here, what the idea of putting something onto a jellyfish sting after you've had it, after you have been stung, is, is um, a to kind of reduce the pain because obviously you've already been stung and that that hurts a lot. You've have you ever these. been stung? Yes, quite a lot. Of course, marine biologists get stung all the time. It's just part of the job.
0: Come on, what what's what has stung you?
1: Um. I've Come at various things that I haven't seen, but just kind of grabbed at my ankles when I've been walking through um, shallow water, and um, and one wrapped itself around my leg and I had a lovely line for a while. I just, so, oh, what did it feel like for you? Um, burning and just very, very painful. Was it
0: like an electric jolt? Literally, instant agony.
1: It, st- it felt like a, a, a really bad sting- stinging nettle sting. In fact, one time I felt like I'd stepped over a stinging nettle, but a really horrible stinging nettle, basically. Mm. I mean, I have m- friends of mine, luckily I haven't, but m- friends of mine have been stung by stingrays, and that's really nasty. Oh, really? That you sort of, if you step on one by mistake and it flips its tail around and jabs, it jabs the sting into your leg. Now, that's really nasty.
0: I got stung by a Portuguese man of war. That was actually uh, when I was swimming off of Palm Beach in Florida, not far from the Kennedy Space Center, in fact, near your Marine Reserve. And, and that was very painful.
1: There's a very dangerous those ones That's, yeah in australia
0: yeah. they call them blue bottles and yes. a really interesting bit of trivia That's about somewhere. this since we're talking about jellyfish and i'm sorry to interrupt right. and steal your thing about stings but a uh, really interesting thing about jellyfish and portuguese manamore you know you know they're sort of a, a mobile float they look mm. a bit like a breast bobbing along on top of the water and on the top of this uh, bubble let's say they have this sail of tissue sticking upwards and it's interesting because different different versions of the jellyfish have it pointing at different angles and half of them have it pointing, let's say, at 45 degrees and the other one have it pointing at 135 degrees. So the idea here is that when the wind's blowing onshore, half of them will blow out to sea. And half of them will blow onto the beach, so you only lose half your population at any given time. I isn't that amazing? That's
1: amazing. And you know that actually Portuguese man o' war aren't jellyfish; they're actually a type of hydraulic... Sort of colony, they're colony they're a colonial isn't it? of lots of little tiny cells that, that stick together and, and act and create. I think a, a silicon implant was a nice way of describing the float on a Portuguese man o' war. I
0: like my analogy better. But sorry, carry on with what you're saying. Anyway, about sting. so
1: we don't know about the effect of urine. And what you so what you want to do is get rid of the pain, but also try and stop. If you've got a tentacle stuck to you, try and prevent any more of those nematocysts, those firing little blast that I was talking about the other week, try and stop them from firing. And um, I was looking around and I couldn't find any science, scientific studies that would be prepared to look at why urine might have an effect on this. It certainly is something of a traditional treatment and lots of different parts of the world. It's something that people do. It's something you've got access to, let's say, if you have a sting and you don't have with you some vinegar, which vinegar is much more a usual sort of treatment for jellyfish stings and has been tested. In fact, there was a study in um, that was reported in New Scientist a few years ago. Years ago, saying that they tested um, coke and four old
0: not not cocaine presumably
1: Coca-Cola because cocaine
0: would be excellent because cocaine is a fantastic local anaesthetic. Uh, It's a really good local anaesthetic, so so it would work.
1: So if you don't have any of that, um, Coca-Cola and four-day-old wine, but basically because they're very acidic, um, can help uh, reduce the pain and stop the firing of these nematocysts. Um, And we think it might be something to do with the vinegar um, dehydrating these these nematocyst cells and sort of stopping them being able to fire. But it's a bit hazy still so if all you've got is urine it might work and apparently males have more sterile urine than females so if you get a male friend to provide the necessary for you then that's great but if you can't you know, bring some vinegar along just in case it's probably better.
0: Okay, okay, well here's a hair-raising story because we are talking obviously about insects this evening because it is National Insect Week and a recent study amongst Welsh Welsh schoolchildren, they went to, the researchers have published this in the Journal of the Archives of Disease in Childhood, they actually went to th- and tested 300,000 schoolchildren in 31 schools across Wales and they got 316 lice samples after combing their way through these 300,000 heads and they tested these lice against the usual chemicals that were used to clean heads that are infested with nits and these include things like permethrin and malathione. they're the usual creams and lotions you rub in and worryingly 80% of the nits that they recovered were resistant to these permethrins so what we've got is a rising tide of resistance we've seen this with superbugs in hospital now we're seeing the same thing with nits on people's heads in wales i wonder if it's going to spread to elsewhere in the uk i hope not itchy 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 the naked scientists Supported by the Welcome Trust. Time now to head across the Atlantic and
2: join the guys at Science Update, Chelsea Ward and Bob Hershon For the naked scientists this week, how being overweight might actually be healthy, at least if you're pushing 80. But first, to the prospective mothers out there, do you wish you could make like Angelina Jolie and run off to a resort to relax for the duration of your pregnancy? Well, of course you do. But if you can't afford it, take heart. Chelsea explains that your baby may not mind a little stress.
3: In fact, a little stress during pregnancy may even be helpful to the baby. This according to Johns Hopkins University developmental psychologist Janet Tepetro, She and her colleagues found that when mothers experienced mild stress and anxiety in mid-pregnancy, their kids had superior mental and motor skills by age two, whether or not mom was still anxious. And the kids were just as well adjusted as others their age
4: there were no effects on how children behaved. So it's not that they were doing better developmentally, but they were really a handful to control. Um, there There was no effect on things like how hyperactive they were, how they controlled their emotions, and so on.
3: She cautions that it's still important to treat severe anxiety or depression, but everyday stress may be nothing to stress about.
2: Thanks, Chelsea. Well, if you live to be 80, you're entitled to carry a few extra pounds. In fact, it may be healthy to do so. This according to University of Southern California epidemiologist Maria Carada. She and her colleagues found that people in their 80s and 90s who were somewhat overweight, according to the commonly accepted body mass index, actually lived longer than their leaner counterparts. Just why that is isn't clear.
1: Maybe having a a few extra pounds
4: may protect the elderly from more severe injuries such as hip fractures, for example, during a fall. There's some diseases that are associated with weight loss and maybe having a few extra pounds
1: means that you can lose a little bit more weight before you become too thin and too
2: unhealthy. Whatever the reason, she says that different weight standards may be needed for the oldest of the old.
3: Thanks, Bob. Next week, we'll talk about scientists who are listening to animals like horses and killer whales. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald.
2: And I'm Bob Hirschon for AAAS, the Science Society. Over to you, Naked Scientists. That was
0: Chelsea Wald and Bob Hirschon from Science Update. More details on their website at (laughs) www.scienceupdate.com. Now as uh, always we're going to do a bit of kitchen science this week and we're off to the Museum of Zoology in Cambridge where Derek's with Sam, Luke and Dr Ed Turner from Cambridge University and the Wildlife Trust and they're going to be making some pitfall traps that I told you about earlier. Hello Derek!
5: Hello there, and this week we've come to the Museum of Zoology in uh, the University of Cambridge for National Insect Week. And of course we are now in National Insect Week, so we're all very excited about the science experiment that we're going to do this week because we are going to be catching insects, and we're doing this with the help of one chap who's come to help us out. Uh, Would you please uh, introduce yourself for us?
6: Hi, my name's Ed Turner, I work at the Zoology Department here in Cambridge and also with the Wildlife Trusts.
5: Okay, and I gather you've set up some experiments for us to catch some insects, is that right? Yes what we've done we've
6: set up some pitfall traps here to catch some insects.
5: Fantastic. Okay, and we've also got some volunteers who've come along to help us out. So guys, could you give me your names, your first names, and uh, what school you're from?
4: Hi, I'm Sam from the Purse. I'm Luke, also from the purse.
5: Okay, and it's National Insect Week, so are you guys excited? Do you like insects?
4: I've loved them since I was very, very little.
5: Okay, that's absolutely fantastic. And yourself?
4: Yeah, I like insects too.
5: Right then, so Ed, what we need to know then is how to make these traps so that we can catch some insects because, of course, people at home can do this as well and they've been encouraged to do this over the last week but if they'd like to listen to your instructions now, they can do it. So,
6: what do you have to do? Well, it's very, very easy. All you need is some plastic cups and you just want to find a patch in your garden where you can safely dig so that's quite important. Don't dig up the middle of your lawn or anything like that. Just dig a small hole, put the uh, cup in and make sure the surface of it is completely flat with the soil so any insects walking along can easily move into it. Um, and maybe what you could also do is put uh, maybe uh, half a bucket over the over the top of it to protect it from the rain.
5: Okay, then. And uh, obviously, people might think, "Oh, I don't really want to cut up my bucket at home." I mean, is there anything else they can use to protect it?
6: Yeah, absolutely anything. Um, uh, an old ice cream uh, carton, anything like that really.
5: And then suspending that above it to um, above the cup that you've put in the soil to protect it from the rain, how can you do
6: that? Well, what I've used is some bamboo poles, but you could use any sticks, anything at all, just to hold it off the surface.
5: Okay then, now we're actually in the uh, new museum site at Cambridge and we've um, set up some pitfall traps already, but what are the kind of places that we can set them up in to kind of see what different kinds
6: of insects we can get? Well, what I've done here is I've put um, some traps in the border, so actually in the, in the loose soil. I've put some also underneath a, a, a hedge, and I've put some into the lawn as well. I've had the permission of the gardeners here in Zoology, so you could do that if you're very careful, but you have to ask your parents first.
5: Yes, exactly. So we don't want anyone to be decimating their parents' lovely lawn here. Yeah, no,
6: absolutely, yeah. A little bit of a hole, not too much, though.
5: OK, that's fantastic. So just to recap what Ed said there, we've got uh, four pit traps here actually in slightly different positions. One of them is uh, on the lawn itself, uh, and then the rest of them are kind of on the soil, um, kind of in the garden. One of them's in the shade, one of them is quite far away from the border of the lawn, and one of them is very close to that border. So have a go at home. Why not try and find out the different places you can put pit traps and, and see what you can get? And, of course, uh, Sam and Luke are very keen to know what we've got in these pit traps, but we're not going to find out yet. We're going to find out later in the show. But, Sam, what do you think we might have got in some of these pit traps?
4: Well, in the lighter ones, you may find um, small, smaller insects than in the shade because the shade gives them more protection.
5: Okay, it sounds like we have an expert speaking here. I think Ed is nodding, very impressed over there. And yourself, Luke, what do you think?
4: Uh, We might get some uh, grasshoppers or flies or something.
5: OK, and we will see all about that very, very soon. So there we go, then. What we've got here is a setup up in the museum site at Cambridge University, which we are going to be looking in later on in the show, but we would encourage you guys at home to have a go at this. And, of course, if during uh, the last week you have already been setting up your, your pit traps, then please tell us what you found. We'd love you to phone us on 08459 252000, And, of course, you can email as well. That's chris at thenakedscientist.com. And if you're emailing, why not send us a picture? Lots of people have, you know, phone cameras now, stuff. So if you can send a picture of the insects that you've got, send them into the Naked Scientists. that would be absolutely fantastic, all in the name of National Insect Week. So anyway, we will be back here at the University of Cambridge Museum of Zoology very, very soon. Please do join us then. Until then, it's uh, back to the studio.
0: Thanks, Derek. That's Derek Thorne, who's out there at uh, the Perth School with Sam, Luke, and Dr. Ed Turner, and he's from the Wildlife Trust, and uh, we'll be hearing from them later on in the programme. But as he says, if you have any fantastic insect finds in your garden, call in now, Oh eight four five 2000. You can email chris at com, or you can send us a text message, 07786. Twenty I've got a a line here from Mike, who says, I'm from Maryville, Tennessee. It's a small town in East Tennessee near the Smoky Mountains. I've enjoyed the show for several months now, and my 12-year-old son heard it today and really enjoyed it, and will probably become a regular. So thanks very much for that, Mike.
1: Now, you might remember last week, um, I talked about getting... We got some emails saying that they loved our English accents listening on the podcast on the internet. And I've got another couple of emails here saying just the same thing. Um, here is one email from Kelly Topp in Toronto in Canada. She says she loves the show. We get right into the stories without wasting a second. And there are so many podcasts where you have so much chit-chat at the start. So I hope you're still enjoying that. And, uh, yes, yeah, she says as well that she loves our accents. Well, that's very nice to hear indeed. Also hear from Pete in Australia. And I thought Australians, our accents were quite like an English Accent really weren't they? But uh, oh,
0: good eye, mate.
1: I, I mean, Americans are <laughs> gonna I think hate me for that. Maybe, aren't they? maybe you, all the Americans listening can let us know. Do you think that it's difficult to tell an English accent from an Australian accent? Because I find I'm always taught that I'm Australian by Americans. But uh, Pete from Australia says uh, he particularly likes our accents, especially mine. Thanks, Pete. I'm always told I'm there, very Helen, posh, yeah. so that's great to have a fan. <laughs>
0: Now look, uh, you guys. Uh, I should I should say our guests in the studio this this week from the University of Newcastle we have uh, Dr Claire Rind and from the University of Cambridge Dr William Foster. They're here with us, and uh, we, you're doing very well because you've already got a surge of, of emails. You guys, this one you're going to love. Uh, it comes from Amber Tremaine who says, "I know this is probably the stupidest question you've ever received, but on average, how many flies do we accidentally eat every single day? Can you get back to me ASAP because I really need the answer for something very important, Amber? What do you think, Claire?"
7: Well, I'm not quite sure, but uh, commercial companies have actually uh, quantified the amount of insect material we're allowed to eat in chocolate and cornflakes and things like that, so that if they have to quantify it, it they, you must be eating it. Because it's,
0: so, it's insect parts per million in chocolate it, and things, it isn't
7: it? Is, it is. And... Uh, I would say that we we probably eat more than we would like, and it's just a little bit of extra protein, perhaps.
0: Because I've got this um, email here, Chris uh, Demicoli. uh, uh, He says, my name's Chris, I'm from Malta. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever received a mail from a Maltese, but I hope to be the first. I listen to your show through the podcast. My question is, how do worms appear in things such as packets of nuts when it's still sealed tightly? I've always wondered about this and suspect that it has something to do with expired goods or possibly the temperature. Fantastic show, thanks very much. So presumably it's the same thing. I was going
8: to say about about eating flies. People do catch them uh, in Lake Victoria in huge numbers, lake fly, and they I t- have eaten them. They taste well. They taste like shrimps, which is rather unexpected. Just yes, tell us more about this. So what is this? Well, uh, huge emergences of uh, chironomid flies occur in Africa and Lake Victoria, and people have caught these commercially. What do they um, look like? Well, they look like tiny midges, uh, and they come in huge clouds. It looks as though smoke is
0: rising up over the lake. And so you, if they're that tiny, how do you even know you're eating them then? Because they compact them down in uh, a small of a, Is that like a Gary Baldy? Mm, you, like sort of, you know we used to call those crushed fly biscuits. But it's 100% fly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but flies are actually quite high in protein, aren't they? Oh, yeah, they're delicious. Very good for you, I'm sure. So how did someone discover that? Um, and how do you prepare them? You, you crush them down and then, what, fry them or just dry them? I or? think they were just dried. They just wanted to do something with this huge biomass emerging from the lakes. I suppose we, if you're desperate, then you'll eat anything, wouldn't you? But I think they're quite, quite nice. Quite What's tasty. the funkiest thing you've ever eaten? Have you, you've presumably eaten those, but what
8: else, William, have you... Uh, I've had fried termites. They're very delicious. Fried... Where was that? Uh, in Uganda. Sort of sexual termites emerge in the morning. The children catch them, give them to their parents, and they fry them. When they come home from school at lunchtime, they eat them they' no, very nice I,
0: I was in Beijing, and um, there 's a wonderful market it's a mile long. You can walk along this street market and you can you can have f- uh, f- deep fried cicada on a kebab stick, and they put about thirteen cicadas on a kebab stick and deep fried and uh, actually it, it 's an interesting flavor i 'll say that you sort of have to crunch through this hard shell, but it 's actually quite, quite nice once you get once you get past the revulsion. Come on, Claire, you work on locusts. Have you ever eaten one of those? No.
7: <laughs> I've offered them to my colleagues, but I haven't had any takers.
0: <laughs> Here's another email for you. This is from Lydia. Uh, this is actually, Lydia is in Austria. She says she is writing to us from Graz in Austria. My father's a great fan of your show and he's advised me to ask my question of you. Why are insects, which have composite eyes, not blinded by the sun? Apparently they have no eyelids so that they can shut, and my friend Wendelin blinded some ants with a laser pen, and it appeared that they were quite irritated by that.
7: Well, I think they probably were quite irritated, but uh, insects, they could be temporarily uh, blinded by very bright light, but then eventually, uh, when they go into the, the dark again, their photoperi- their photopigment would be regenerated, and there are some uh, ants that live in really bright conditions in the desert, and they would have uh, pigment to protect their sensitive photocells, and in addition to that the all their neural machinery behind their eyes uh, would a- act to adapt to a very bright light so that the whole system is geared up to uh you know it being able to adjust the gain like you get with a camera if you point a video camera at a bright scene you can see that the camera adapts and that's what uh eye uh, would do if it, if the insect lived in a very bright condition
0: now when we say compound eye actually i mean someone made a model of a compound eye they must make an artificial one the other day which i thought was absolutely incredible using light burrowing down through a sort of polymer but how does the insect actually process that because it's got tons and tons probably thousands of images of the world landing at once hasn't it i mean Uh, that must take a lot of processing
7: it does take a lot of processing but that isn't the way the insect looks at it they don't have thousands of complete images the whole image of the world is uh Pixelated, really. It's more sort of like. broken a, up over that's that. That's right, broken up. And every that little eye. lenslet looks out at a particular region in space. And then it just has to put together all the information from that particular region in space. Uh, and that, that is a beautiful, beautifully engineered circuitry, but uh, it's repeated many times over the eye.
0: Now, Claire, the, the reason I, I sort of vine towards vision and in insects is because a little bird told me that you actually won an Ig Nobel Prize for showing episodes of Star Wars to locusts. Uh, why?
7: <laughs> well, because I could. <laughs> no. I mean, was... Who
0: was funding this
7: research? <laughs> well, the BBSRC. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was... Uh, it was they were, the Star Wars had a huge array of different uh, visual scenes of you know looming motion, and that, that's why we, we chose Star Wars. And Wh- what do you mean? The viewer's what do you mean
0: lo- explain that a bit.
7: Looming is when an object's coming straight for you, straight like towards the viewer. Like those big spaceships viewer. and things. Yes, the yeah. uh, spaceships coming straight for you. And the other thing is that they had spaceships that were passing... Uh, directly over you they were coming very close but they weren't actually having a collision so we could test the the different responses of the neurons to a near collision and a collision and
0: and this is your this is your locus bump sort of anti-bumping device how does that actually work
7: well it detects uh, objects which are approaching by the way that they expand over the eye and uh, they there are circuitries that extract those image cues and will Give a warning when that when the system detects uh, very rapidly expanding edges, which are features of objects which are approaching and on a collision course.
0: So, how could you apply that to the automobile industry? Because that, that's obviously the, the stance you're taking on this.
7: Well, the, the way we are applying it is we've uh, got a little a silicon chip which is uh, uh, inspired by the insect eye, and it has uh, small uh, photocells, rather like the. Uh, cells in the insect eye and then it uh, the, the signals are passed through various layers of circuitry and eventually, after much computation, the uh, signals are summed up and a collision warning is issued if there is sufficient evidence for there being an object approaching on a collision course.
0: But how is this better than the driver at the wheel of a car anyway? Or are you thinking of cars that have now an autopilot of some kind? Uh,
7: they could have an autopilot, but at the moment the a driver is not very good at reacting quickly enough especially if there's a a child or someone steps out quickly in front of the car and the accident is imminent the so say
0: there's a there's a child steps out but there's another car coming out of the way how does your computer resolve that
7: uh the 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 most uh Salient feature, you know, the thing that gives the biggest response is the one that the system would react to. and So
0: it would hit the kid and ignore the car coming the other way. Then
7: it, no, it wouldn't hit the, the child. It, it would that would be the image that was expanding most rapidly over the sensor, and that the collision alerting system would be switched on by that image. It would it ignores a lot of other movement, you know, like. The flow fields that you get when you drive along the road, the image is flowing back over the, the sensor, it ignores all that. It's specifically looking for an object which is on a collision course. And the car coming straight for you, it, it will be a problem if it's coming straight for you <laughs> as well. <laughs>
0: It's Dr. Claire Ryan from the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. If you would like to ask any of uh, us a question about anything science, but remember it is uh, National Insect Week this week, and uh, William Foster's here in the studio too to start taking your questions. 08459 2000 is our phone number. You can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com, or you can send us a text on 07786 20 It is, of course, The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith and Helen Scales. Stripping down science.
2: OK, let's do it.
0: The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, talking this evening with our guests, William Foster and Claire Reint. She's from the Newcastle-upon-Tyne University and William's from the University of Cambridge. William got a, another email here. This is coming from the states. It's from Randall Bachman or Bachman. I hope I've pronounced your name right, Randall. Uh, he lives in Texas, and um, he says I appreciate your show. Uh, you all do a great job. Being in the states doesn't afford me much opportunity to listen in live, uh, but I do play along with your quizzes and things. I have a question because um, in a recent episode you were discussing bees, and it's well known in the USA that bees are dying. Um, as you can imagine, this has a profound impact on certain kinds of agriculture. Um, why are these bees dying? Uh, are they dying elsewhere? And can anything be done to stop it? Do you do you know what? What's going on in Texas? Are oh, we talking about honeybees here? Yeah, I think he's talking about honeybees. Um, well, there is this varroa
8: mite thing which is um, rushing through populations of honeybees in Europe. I'm afraid I don't know about the American situation, but this is a very, very serious pest which is causing a lot of um, concern, certainly in European hives. And I imagine the same thing is happening in America. I'm afraid I don't know about particular America. Um, so, so what actually is the mite in Europe? Because it probably is analogous. Um, well, it gets into the brood, into the sort of uh, cells where the, the larvae and things are growing and essentially eats them and kills them and is very, very contagious and gets from colony to colony and
0: does a huge amount of damage. Well, so what do bees normally do to get rid of problems like this? Because obviously bees have been here for a long time, haven't they? And they, they haven't normally succumbed to this kind of problem. So why has it suddenly appeared now and how do they normally deal with it?
8: Well, they normally... Um, they're, they're very hygienic bees, they're very keen to clean up their colonies and it's very important, it's one of the important tasks of the workers to do that, so they go around taking out dead bees, fungus and including mites as well. Um, I assume this is a relatively new thing which has come into their system and they're not yet properly
0: adapted to it. Okay let's have a quick chat to Colin. Hello Colin. Hello. Good evening, welcome to the Naked Scientist. Right. What, um, what have you found?
9: Well um, I found a couple last year dead, and they're, they're beetles, they're, they were over an inch long Yeah. The um the shell was um if if you uh, a withered acorn would be a good description of it.
0: So it's about um about an inch long then.
9: Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I actually saw one uh, I'm gonna put the dogs in, uh flying off the window. The, the wingspan was nine on two inches of this one.
0: Oh, they have wings?
9: This, yeah. OK. This, this one was flying, it had wings. Mm. And um the the antenna or whatever, if I said a set of false eyelashes on the end, can you imagine <laughs>
0: You're, not, you're making this quite difficult, Colin. Let's have a see and what, see what Claire and William think. What do you reckon? Well, a beetle with um, eyelashes on the end
8: is, is like a scarab beetle or a chafer beetle. It's a very common, they're called, the technical name is lamellicorn beetles. And they use that for picking up pheromones and scents and chemicals and things. So it's, it could be some kind of chafer beetle, a rose chafer or something like that.
0: Right. Particularly this time of year. Have you got access to the internet, Colin? I have, yeah. I, th- I think it's actually, I found this because, um, maybe these guys can help me, because I put a garden pond in recently and I bought some lilies. And they were looking gorgeous until all of a sudden the leaves started appearing like someone had been taking little bites out of them. And when I got one of these leaves that was being devoured at a fast rate of knots, uh, it's a tiny caterpillary-like thing that actually gets between the upper and lower surface of the leaf and eats its way in and out of that, and apparently it's a, it's, um, a midge. And uh, by looking on the net, Colin, I managed to find pictures that were directly the same as this thing that I was finding in my pond and get an identity on it, and then you can find out how to, how to actually deal with it. But maybe it might be worth having a look at, uh, say, Google Images or something.
9: Yeah, So, but you think it sounds like a shape of beetle, does it?
0: Yes, possibly, yes. Yeah,
9: well, that, that gives me a starting point.
0: Quick go at the quiz, Colin. Go on. Uh, because up for grabs tonight, there's a year's membership to Bug Life, and in fact we'll be talking to Matt Shardlow shortly from Bug Life. Uh, and also, uh, courtesy of William, you can have a tour around the secret stores at the Museum of Zoology. What's that all about, uh, William? What have you got on offer there?
8: Well, the, the, most of the Museum of Zoology is not on display to the public. So all the kind of beetles and indeed vertebrates and mollusks and Darwin's barnacles, for example, are, on, are able to be shown behind, but you need someone to Sounds show rude. you around. Sounds da- rude, Darwin's barnacle, isn't it? Well. Darwin's barnacles are lovely. Are all on slides. What are they? Well, he spent after he came back from the voyage to Beagle, he spent about I know, eight years turning himself into a proper biologist by becoming a barnacle taxonomist, and he discovered the barnacle li- a lot about the barnacle life cycle as well as how to identify them. And we have the actual
0: or a lot of the actual specimens that he worked on. Okay, Colin. Here you go. Belches from farmyard animals are causing the greenhouse effect. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? It's-
1: Yep, that's right. Those flatulent farmyard animals account for 20% of the global emissions of greenhouse gas, methane.
0: And if they come round my house, they'll find another competitor to that. It's not me. Uh, You can smell a giraffe from up up to a quarter of a kilometre away. Do you think that's fact or fiction?
7: I'm
1: afraid it's actually true. Apparently, these stinky giraffes have um, two chemicals in their fur called indole and 3-methyl indole, which help repel ticks and prevent bacterial and fungal infections.
0: Two out of three so far, Colin. Last question. Over half of monkeys have evidence of broken bones caused by falling out of trees. Do you think that they're just careless monkeys, or that's a porky? Fact.
1: Yep, that's right. Apparently, a Japanese study uh, researchers have found that... Um, Lots of these uh, macaques have actually fallen out of trees and uh, it's probably not because they're fighting each other but they really just aren't very good at uh, those
0: acrobatics. Well done, Colin. Uh, two out of three, so that's not bad. Right. Take care now. Thanks for calling up. Thank you. Good luck with your bug hunting. Thank you. Bye. So the Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, if you have an interesting bug you'd like us to identify, you have a question about anything science but with a slant this evening towards insects, then text, call or email those numbers O eight four five nine twenty five two thousand text O seven seven eight six twenty nineteen sixty or email Chris at nakedscientist.com Fancy listening to the Naked Scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. So, William, we mentioned at the beginning that one of your interests is in social animals and you're going to be going off to the back of beyond to Thailand soon. Why is that and what are you going to find there?
8: Well, we're hoping to look for uh, social behaviour in beetles. Now, social behaviour is very important in insects because the most successful animals in the world, all animals, are ants and termites. Uh, and they're successful because they're social, because they're able to have huge colonies uh, very well organised. Now, this has evolved rather infrequently. It only occurs in ants, bees, wasps and termites, and we'd like to be able to sh- see whether or not the huge, li- the largest group of animals in the world, the beetles, whether any of them are social. And there's a particular group of beetles they are called, I'm afraid they don't have an English name really, they're called passalid beetles. The Americans call them bess beetles. Now, they have quite advanced parental care. That is, the parents look after their young, and they do things like help the larvae make the pupil case around them. They can't do it themselves. The parents have to kind of push from one side and the larvae push from the other side. So they have very elaborate social care, and this has been known for a while. But no one's ever really studied them very thoroughly, and we know there are large colonies of various species in this
0: part of Southeast Asia, and we want to go and find them. So how, when you're mounting an expedition like that, how do you set it all up? What's the steps involved and, and obviously how much is this going to cost? Well,
8: it doesn't cost all that much. The, we're doing this with the Natural History Museum uh, in London uh, and they are mainly going to collect, just uh, collect and look for beetles and lepidoptera, butterflies and moths in the area generally and they've done most of the organisation. The, what is really required is a permit to bring the material out of Thailand because all countries, quite correctly, don't like people just going in and sort of pillaging all their animals. They want to know what's happening. Um, and this we haven't got the permit yet actually we're still ne- the National museum is still negotiating with with the Thai authorities but we will have that. That's the major thing that's needed. Otherwise you just need somewhere to live and nets and tubes and alcohol that is 80% alcohol. <laughs> Not for the scientists want... <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 never drink that kind of thing. Uh, In which to put the, um, the insects when
0: we caught them. So going back to these beetles do we think that that the origin of this social behaviour wasps live together in colonies? Uh, we we think that some spiders do, ants definitely do, and bees do, of course. Do they all have a sort of common ancestor that developed like that, or, or have they independently evolved to have this interreliance and interdependence on each other? It's happened independently s- several times, but not that often. It's ha- the termites
8: probably had two origins of social behaviour. For example, the ants probably only one. Another group that is social are the aphids, green fly, which I've worked on a little bit. You, you would expect them to be social because they're colonial, they're clonal, they're all the same uh, um, genetically. So just like if you still have that, that breast in your mind, the, um, the Portuguese man of war, that, that, that's also a, a social animal. It's uh, clonal, it's identical, only some of the individuals in the Portuguese man of war actually reproduce. And it's the same for green flies, it's some, for of green will, flies will sex, some of them will
0: sexually, so yes. like, like, rather than just cloning themselves, they, they will actually have sex. Um, well, only some of them actually reproduce. Some of them are totally sterile. Almost. Well, green fly. This yes, is not Portuguese. This is, this is green
8: fly. Yeah. Some of them are just warriors, like there are warrior polyps, warrior individuals in the Portuguese. Is that to
0: distract predators? So if you've yep. got 50 billion green flies, uh, a couple of them don't actually do anything, they just sit there as a green fly eating uh, and looking fat and juicy. Then if something comes along to eat the green fly, it's more likely to pick on one of those ones that's sterile, that's not going to reproduce, and leave alone the one that can foster another well, sort
8: of. In this case, it's more the fact that there are soldiers, which are baby ones, heavily armed with teeth and so on, and then claws, and they rush around over the colony, uh, f- kicking off parasitic wasps um, or anything that's trying to come and eat them.
0: There's an interesting story recently where uh, scientists were looking at how plants actually have their own sort of alert system, where they use chemical signals so that when, say, a caterpillar or one of these other green flies and other kinds of animals eats the plant, the plant releases various chemicals that then attract. Predators that like to eat the animals that are eating the plant. Yes, they attract, they not predators, they attract they parasites. parasites, yes,
8: yeah, sure. Uh, so they're usually hymenoptera, uh, like the ants, bees, and wasps, but in this case, not social. They come flying in and lay their eggs on the caterpillars that are uh, eating the plant. It's a relatively recent discovery, but it's definitely true. There's lots of good evidence for this now.
0: So going back to your Thailand situation, why is it that no one's ever discovered the fact that there are these social beetles knocking around, uh, given the the wealth of information you've already told us, that these things have these independent relationships on in each other, they, they can't reproduce without another one's help? Well,
8: people have studied them a little bit. Um, there's some work been done in America. An American schoolteacher in the 1930s kept them by his bed and watched them doing various things. Um, I suppose there's not much money in them. They're not that important ecologically. Um, They are quite important, I think. They live in in wood and break down wood. Um, And no one's really been that interested in this kind of theory of evolution of social behaviour until recently. So it's something we want to look
0: at. Isn't there a claim um, that, in fact, in the same way that Claire's trying to look at locusts to see if there are ways in which we can borrow from biology to make cars safer, people are interested in looking at how ants communicate and signals pass through colonies in order to make computers faster?
8: Yes, indeed. I think there are lots of analogies one can make with uh, social insect colonies and how to make sort of, as it were, things like brains work or how, how to make complex systems work because all these colonies work on very simple rules which the individuals make and by the uh, accumulation of lots of simple rules and lots of individuals one can get the emergence of very complex properties. So I think that's the kind of approach that people are taking.
1: Going back to your expedition, um, when you're out there, it, presumably it's rainforest you're looking at, is yep. it? Um, and you're hunting down these beetles. How will you know if they are social rather than just being a whole bunch of beetles that happen to live in high concentrations? What's the kind of keys you're going to be looking for? Do you think? Uh,
8: the, the key thing, w- in the end, we'll want to see, and this will involve, I'm afraid, killing them, is to the extent to which the females, in particular, in there are reproductive. So, if we got, say, a hundred females, they are recorded to be a hundred in one log, we would as it were, collect them all and see if there's a queen beetle who is full of eggs and so on, and lots of worker beetles who aren't. So we're looking for the extent to which reproduction is uh, concentrated in one individual rather than spread across the whole colony. No-one knows that
0: at all for this group at the moment. The Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, and we're talking this evening with Dr Claire Rind and Dr William Foster. If you'd like to ask them any questions, oh eight four five 2000 is our phone number. You can email us, chris at com or send us a text, it's 07786... 20, 19, 60. Anything to do with the science of insects. And uh, keep your calls coming in. More questions coming up in a second, including Do ants go to sleep, William? That's coming up. And also Why Mosquito Bites Are Itchy. Laying the facts bare. Ooh. The Naked Scientists. Okay, got an email here from Brian Orr, who's in Singapore. Hello, this is Brian from Singapore. I'm just wondering, when I was walking home the other night, that I saw a bunch of ants that were crowding around some food crumbs on the pavement. Do ants sleep? What do that? What seems to be? What's going on? They seem to be running around all the time. Do they have some kind of shift schedule that they follow? Uh, one on, one off.
8: Yes, someone's looked at ants' behaviour patterns by f- following the behaviour of the whole colony over a matter of days and they have very definite patterns when the whole colony kind of closes down, they just all rest there and then a few hours later they all start moving around again, then in, in a very specific rhythm they all stop again. So they do have rhythms of behaviour, whether exactly sleeping, they're certainly kind of resting, uh, they don't, they're not active all the time.
0: If you have a question like that, uh, the more the merrier, and the funnier the better, I guess. Uh, just email them in chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, Matt Shardlow's on the line. He's the Conservation Director of Bug Life. Good evening, Matt. Thank you for joining us. Evening. Tell us a little bit about your work.
9: Uh, we, we, we're a little charity called Bug Life, and we, uh, we were set up uh, four years ago to fill the gap in the conservation agenda, where there hasn't been an organisation about promoting the conservation of all British invertebrates, of which there are 44,000 incredibly important little animals doing all sorts of jobs like pollinating flowers, keeping wildlife alive. That's, uh, they're eaten by birds and fish. Without the invertebrates, which are the, which are the little cogs that make the plant go around, all the other wildlife would be in trouble. So we've been set up as a, a new charity to try to address some of the conservation issues that are specific to invertebrates.
0: You very kindly offered uh, to give a year's membership to someone who wins uh, our competition this evening. What will that entitle them to? What will they get?
9: As, as a member, obviously, you're, you're part of Bug Life. You're supporting the work that we're doing, making sure that there's more invertebrates out there. And I think we'll talk a bit about some of the problems that uh, invertebrates are facing in a little while. Um, and you'll also get, obviously, our updates, which will uh, put you right off on, on, on the ball as to what's going on with invertebrate conservation, and posters when they come out and all the various other access to our website, etc. Et
0: now one of the things that um, you're looking at, Matt, is is brownfield sites. In other words, you know, sites that people have built on that have become derelict. Uh, they're important for these kind of animals, allegedly.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, brownfield sites are actually as important for endangered invertebrates as ancient woodlands are. So uh, we think of some of these natural sites as being, you know, very natural, very untouched by human hands, being very important for wildlife. But actually some of the sites that we've been mucking around with most, also actually very important for types of wildlife. So for instance, uh, old sand quarries where we've dug, dug the ground out, there's open bare sand. In some cases like the Thames Gateway where these sorts of sites are close to the sea, close to where there used to be an upper salt marsh, which was also a dynamic sandy habitat. You've got species now living in the brownfield sites, in, in these old sand pits, that previously you would have found along the tops of the salt marsh. But of course, the salt marsh is now all covered with sea defences, so there's nowhere left for these animals to live. However, these brownfield sites a lot of other features that are important for wildlife, important for invertebrates
0: to It's quite ironic, isn't it, Matt, that, that we've created uh, uh, an area of human habitation and therefore a niche for these animals, and we might end up having to conserve areas of the countryside that we've actually initially damaged in order to save these species.
9: Yeah, we, we tend to think of green fields as being sort of analogous with, uh, you know, wildlife rich, and a wonderful haven, and Eden type of thing, but if you actually look at what falls into the formal classification of a green field. It also, unfortunately, includes lots of, you know, what brown arable fields that are sprayed repeatedly by pesticides and herbicides. And even most of the pastures out there now have very few wildflowers left in them. Uh, they're, they're covered in fertilisers. That's bad for the invertebrates. They're sprayed with pesticides. That's bad for the plants and the invertebrates. So in terms of, you know, a rich ecosystem, these rich ecosystems are now actually increasingly rare. And... What is happening is that a lot of the places where you are getting lots of wildflowers, so there's lots of nectar and pollen sources, but also lots of bare ground for things to nest in and bask on, which lots of these invertebrates love to do. Sort of a lot of, of those. Sorts what sort
0: of animals are we talking about here,
9: ma'am? Wasps, beetles, bees, uh, butterflies, things like the uh, uh, dingy skipper, for instance. Uh, there's a, a little salt marsh beetle that's uh, called the salt marsh short spurred little ground beetle. For instance, again the Thames Gateway, running around on these sites. Also, bumblebees. You know, bumblebees need these large areas to go and forage and get all their nectar from, so they can get the next generation of queens out for the next year. Without these areas of brownfield, there would be much smaller. There nectar resources for a lot of these bees, and they'd be going extinct. In fact, they're, they're already declining massively, so things like the straw card, the bee and brown banded card, to bee, disappeared from wide areas of the countryside, hanging on, for instance, in the Thames Gateway, on these large brownfield sites which still have wild flowers on Those, them.
1: They all sound fantastic, they are all these bugs that we can find. What do people who live nearby think about these these insects? Are they aware of them, or, or is this sort of, are they kind of hidden away and we don't really see them? Uh,
9: uh, I think they're, they're becoming more aware of them, um, and again, that's you know one of the things why Bug Life was set up. Bugs get a lot of bad PR, and they get a lot of uh, you know mosquitoes out to get you, and uh, you know new invasive alien invertebrate out to destroy the countryside. Um, aphids about to eat all your garden plants, but very rarely does anyone.
0: So say, I can identify with that. <laughs>
9: <laughs> well, exactly, and, and you know I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but but at the same time, no one's out there sort of saying, look. These bees, they pollinate our crops. Two out of every three mouthfuls of food that we eat is there because of pollination. And 80% of the crops that are grown in Europe are there, are, are pollinated by invertebrates. And if we're looking at uh, an, an environment that's sustainable, if we're looking you know, forward just on this one issue of pollination, I could pull out any number of other ones, then we want to sustain our populations of pollinators. Because who knows what we're going to be trying to plant and grow in this country in a hundred or two hundred or a thousand years time to feed our children and our grandchildren. So
0: they're going to do a pretty good job aren't they? Look Matt, we're going to have to leave it there but thank you for, for joining us and telling us about the importance of this and thank you for donating a year's membership to Bug Life to a successful winner on The Naked Scientist tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, that's Matt Shardlow who's the Conservation Director of Bug, Li- of Bug Life and this is The Naked Scientist. Stripping down science.
2: Okay, let's do it.
0: The Naked Scientists. Chris and Helen with you this on this week's show. And here's John in Peterborough. Hi, John. Hi there. What would you like to know about?
9: Right, uh, years ago, well, i work working in the bakery now, but years ago, we used to get a lot of cockroaches, mm. right? And we used to start the bread things inside one another. Yes. Right? there was hardly any gap there, yet the cockroaches
0: used to get inside. How did they manage that? The cockroaches still got inside. What do you guys reckon?
7: Well, I think probably they... These cockroaches are... Although they're quite big insects, they're quite flat dorsal so that they might have been able to... Crawl in through a very small hole. Alternatively, if they had laid their eggs uh, between the tins, they the eggs may have been may have hatched and uh, perhaps developed there.
0: Yeah, well, the things we use every day, you see. Yeah, well, well, they're, they're pretty they're good pop- at getting places, aren't they, cockroaches? Yes, they
7: they're very flat and they can squeeze in.
0: Ah, I see. Yeah, they're, they're, quite, they're quite good at getting places they shouldn't. John, do you want a very quick go at the quiz? Yes, yeah, sure. Okay, dokie, here we go. We're going to have to be really quick on this. Okay. Australia is under threat from yellow crazy ants. Is that fact or fiction? Uh fiction.
1: No, I think that's uh, true actually, the yellow crazy ants which can blind humans and animals because they spray acid and they live in these h- super colonies we've been talking about today.
0: Patients don't trust a fat doctor as much as a leaner one, and I'm skinny by the way. Fact or fiction?
1: Yep, that's completely right. Yes, so uh, that's interesting
0: (laughs) psychology about (laughs) doctors. Genetically modified silkworms can be used to make human skin. Is that fact or fiction, John? Uh, Fiction.
1: I'm afraid it's actually true. Japanese scientists have been adding the gene so that silkworms can make uh, collagen, which is what our skin is made out
0: of. One out of three, John, you're in second place. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientists this evening. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, The Naked Scientist's. The Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, our guests this evening, William Foster and Claire Rind. We're talking about the science of insects and time now to head back to that school. Uh, We're joining Derek, Sam, Luke and Ed Turner there at the purse and they're all uh, congregating at the Museum of uh, Zoology this evening because we've asked you to set some uh, man traps. Well, let's call them pitfall traps and let's see what you've been catching. What have you got, guys?
5: Hello there once again. Welcome back to the just outside the Museum of Zoology at Cambridge University and we are here with the results of our pit traps which um, Ed Turner from the Museum of Zoology and the Wildlife Trust has set up for us. So Sam and Luke are ready with their results. So why don't we have a look. Um, Ed we'd like to instruct Sam firstly what to do with with the cup which we've just taken out of uh, its position
6: where it was in the garden. We've got, so we've got lots of stuff in there, so we need to pour it right on the middle. We've got a white tray here, so we can see easily what the insects are we've got, and right in the middle, so things are already hopping out, actually, as we're doing that. They are insects, are they, Ed? Well, they're not really insects. They're, very, they're like very primitive insects. They've got six legs, but they're not actually insects. They're called non-insect hexapods.
5: Well, hey, OK, then. And uh, just tell me a bit about them, then. I mean, they look to me like they're maybe three or four millimetres long. Mm. They're ca- crawling around, maybe about as big as ants, but with longer antennae. What, what else can you say?
6: Well, if we look at them, we've got some hand lenses here, which you can, you can get from... Sort of quite easily but they're they're very velvety if you have a look at them I think Sam's just having a look now what what,
5: what can you tell us about it Sam what can you see with the magnifying glass
4: they're quite hairy and they've got a sort of stripe through the middle where Mm. there's a colour change
5: Okay, and also what are they doing
4: well they seem to be escaping and occasionally um, they'll jump Mm. but they won't go too far
6: OK, what's all the jumping about? Well, actually, that gives you a clue to their name. They're actually called springtails. So what it actually is, they've got a spring at the end of their tail, which um, is, a, is a little structure looks a bit like an arm, which they can straighten very fast, and it will shoot them into the air. So it's an escape response. And, and the, the reason is these things are eaten by nearly everything. So that's why they're, they're a bit nervous. They're a bit twitchy animals, just simply because everything's trying to munch them. Uh, so, Luke, how about you um, pour some of one
7: of
5: your uh, cups out there onto one of the white trays that we've got here? OK, there we go. And, and, and Luke, where was that one from in the garden?
4: That was from the lawn.
5: OK, so that was actually in the grass. OK then, so what have we got here? What can you see there, Luke?
4: We've got a uh, woodlouse, which is curling up.
5: OK, yeah, I, th- I, think I, can see, I think I can identify woodlouse as well. Ed, what can you say about that?
6: Well, so again, another interesting um, response to predation here, so to escape predators or things that are trying to eat it. So what we've got is a pill woodlouse, so, it, so its response is to curl up a little bit like an armadillo and protect itself from predators.
5: OK, so essentially these things think we are predators, do they?
6: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think they're, they're, they're in fear of their life, but of course they're, they're not going to be harmed today, they're going to be put back afterwards.
5: OK then, let's have a look at a third cup then. Uh, what other one have we got here? Luke, have you got another one there?
4: Yes, it was um, in the shade, in the soil.
5: OK then, so let's pull that out and see what we've got. OK, and what can you see there? Sam?
4: Um, I think there's a young devil's coach horse. But Ooh, I-
5: OK, and describe that for me.
4: It's sort of long and black... It's got six legs like um, the average insect, but it's also looks—it's long.
6: Well, sounds like we have a real expert here, actually, Ed. What, what do you say? No, no, he's absolutely right. It's not, it's not a young one. It's a bit of different species. So um, with, with, um, with insects, the larvae are like, a, bit like, a bit like grubs with beetles. So it's a type of beetle. Um, and, you, and you're quite right, it's a devil's coach horse. It's a rove beetle. Um, and unlike most beetles, which have got these two big hardened wing cases, if you think of ladybirds, those kind of hardened wing cases... Um, Rove beetles have actually got very tiny wing cases, and the reason is they can then move very easily between the soil or in cracks and um, crevices and things like that, and, and often hunt for smaller insects, maybe for these collembolans, actually these springtails we've already seen.
5: Okay, and, and one thing that occurred to me as well, when Luke poured out this cup that we got from the shady part of the garden, was that there were really a lot of insects in there. I mean, is, is that what we would expect?
6: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think what we've got here is lots of, lots of animals which are living all around the, the moist ground and in the mud, and so they don't like to dry out too much. This is maybe why we're getting more insects.
5: OK, right. Well, I think I'm very impressed with the stuff we found here, actually. I'm very delighted as well that it all did turn out fine. Um, so, Sam, what, what did you think of, of our harvest of insects here?
4: I think you definitely got a lot more insects nearer the shade.
5: Mm, yeah, and I, I think we, well, you guys predicted that, didn't you? I can't take any credit for that. But yes, well done to you. And, uh, and Luke, what do, what do you think? How do you like the experiment we've done?
4: Yeah, it was good. We've got lots of insects and different types.
5: All right, OK. And I think hopefully you at home have heard that it's really very easy to do with uh, a pitfall trap that we've made here. So uh, hopefully you can do it as well and tell us at The Naked Scientists what you find. Um, and of course, Ed, if people actually would like to get some more information on what they've found, uh,
6: what else can they do? Well, they can come along to National Insect Week here in the Department of Zoology on the 24th and bring any insects that they can't identify um, themselves. And we've got an Ask the Entomologist section, so Ask the Insect Expert section. So you can bring along your stuff, and we'll do our best to identify it for you.
5: And we're at, at the Museum of Zoology.
6: Museum of Zoology, just Matt, to
5: where we are. Okay, at the new museum site, and perhaps you'll see the pitfall traps that we set up here. So that's fantastic. Okay, well, thank you very much to Luke and Sam, and to Ed for setting up the experiment. And uh, I hope you have a very fun Insect Week, looking for insects where you are. So we'll be. Back next week anyway so until then it's back to the studio
0: we're joined now by Alan who's in Kent hi Alan yes hi there Uh, what's your question Uh,
9: the question is this Um, my mother left the lid off of a jar of honey in a food cupboard Um, we'd never seen any ants there before um, but they managed to form a line to the food cupboard from the back door um, overnight, and they found the jar of honey. Now the question is, how do they do that? I mean, uh, is it some form of radar?
0: How did they track down the honey then, uh, William and Claire? Well, I th- it's not radar,
8: no. I think they just have scouts who are kind of foraging around from the home colony, and when one of them does hit a nice bit of food like your mother's honey, uh, he will, she then will then go back to the colony and recruit lots more, and then they form the trail to the honey.
9: Right. Um, but the, the thing about this, they seem very tiny ants. So are there different species
8: of ants? Oh, there are, yes. There are several thousand species of ants in the world. They are probably the most important insects in the world, animals in the world, I would say, actually.
0: But the, the small ones are probably pharaoh ants. And the reason I know that is because we did an experiment here on the Naked Scientists in about winter time. And we actually encouraged people to set up their own system where ants were given a honeypot. And we got an ant's nest into the studio and showed how they lay down the chemical trail to to do that recruitment that uh, William just mentioned, Alan. Right. right. It it, it seemed a miracle to me how they would do it. Well, you know, they're very successful animals. Exactly. Do you want a quick go to the quiz? I wouldn't mind. Okay. your weight increases when you walk on the carpet. Uh, Fact or fiction? Fiction. Fiction.
1: Really it's true. If you put a set of weighing scales on a carpet, you're heavier because if otherwise, it was on a solid surface. The scales bend a bit and make you look lighter. All
0: oh, right. <laughs> so the answer there for rapid weight loss e- pro- regime is just to weigh yourself on carpet. The European Space Agency are planning to launch a fleet of small satellites to help defend the Earth against attacks from space. Do you think that's fact or fiction? I think that one's fiction.
1: Yep, that's right. No, but they are launching some microsatellites, which are 60 centimetres across, to look at near-Earth objects and see whether asteroids and things might smash into the Earth.
0: Plants and trees look green because they absorb green light from the sun, which they then turn into energy to help them grow. Fact or fiction?
9: I would say that is fact.
1: No, I'm afraid it's actually because we absorb the other colours and it's the green light that gets reflected back, and that's why they look
0: green. Thanks for joining us on the show tonight, Alan. No problem. That's the Naked Scientists. Chris, Helen, um, our guests this evening have been Claire Rind from the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne and Dr William Foster from the University of Cambridge. Thank you to both of you for doing a wonderful job on this evening's Naked Scientists and introducing us to the fantastic world of insects. Very quick, uh, ten seconds from you, William. Tell us, what can people find at the uh, d- Department of Zoology this week for Insect Week? Got 10, oh, they can seconds. find uh,
8: locusts flying, they can find Darwin's beetles and they can see a, a, a plane tree being fogged for insects from the canopy.
0: So uh, there you go, come to the University of Cambridge this week for an introduction to insects It's official, next week we're sending Derek to Tanzania He's going to be making some ugali If you want to know what that's all about, join us at 6 next week But in the meantime, uh, please send your questions for next week's Naked Scientists Q&A show It's our question and answers An hour devoted to all of your science questions and answers So tune in for the Naked Scientists at 6 next week Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.